But if you get so discouraged by all this that you don't bother to vote or vote only to protest something and not because you think the person you're voting for will actually do a good job, you're the one ultimately ruining things for everybody. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we continue to talk about words related to government and politics. And this week, let's have a civil discussion about words related to citizenship and civility and civil disobedience and all of the duties of a citizen. We talked about a citizen before, the word, but uh, let's talk about citizenship, which is its own particular thing. That's a legal definition. Right. Usually connected now with countries rather than cities. Of course, citizenship originally were in city-states. But um, what citizenship means varies depending on uh, what period of history you're talking about and what country you're in. And there's some interesting facts about American citizenship. Um, before women were allowed to vote, they were still counted as citizens. So it uh, didn't mean that necessarily the same thing as a voter. It took a long time before uh, Native Americans were recognized as citizens, although they were the original inhabitants here. One odd one, which happens to be in the news a bit, um, just as we're recording here, is dual citizenship. Uh, for a long time, it was basically understood that you couldn't be a citizen of uh, some foreign country and of the United States. Um, only in 1967, the Supreme Court ruled that American citizens who move abroad and become citizens of another country are not required to renounce their citizenship. But if you're from another country coming to the United States, you're still required to swear an oath renouncing your previous citizenship, although um, that is not rigorously enforced. A lot of countries don't have that. There are many places where people will be quite happy to be citizens of two or three different countries. So the U.S. has been kind of possessive about that. But now we have Prince Harry of the British royal family planning to marry an American woman, uh, not only with one black parent and with uh, being divorced um, and not being a member of the Church of England. She's about to change that. She's going to convert. But she's an American citizen, so uh, what she'll have to do is to get British citizenship in order to marry into the royal family and be a citizen there. Um, will she renounce her American citizenship? And there's been some debate about that. That's high drama. Yeah. <laughs> Intrigue. Not that the consequences are huge, but it's in the news anyway. It's just a topic you don't hear about much, dual citizenship. When you put it that way, an English man is going to marry an American woman, and it puts a laser beam on all these issues. I mean, uh, that happens all the time, and we make no note of it and don't really think about these issues as it relates to that. But uh, because this is a very high profile, of course, 
marriage. We're paying attention to this. Well, and of course, it immediately reminded everybody of, say, Edward V? Yes. Who married Wallace Simpson, not only uh, an American, but a divorcee. And uh, she was considered dubious because she was American and utterly unacceptable because she was a divorcee. And at that time, the Church of England did not recognize divorce. So that would have been seen as an adulterous relationship, and he was pressured into finally leaving the throne, and Queen Elizabeth, current Queen Elizabeth's father, succeeded to the throne in his place. Now there's uh, the royal family is being very nice and saying, oh, what a nice young woman. Oh, she's an actress, too. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hey, sign of the times. Nell Gwynn never could have become queen or... <laughs> married into the royal family, but she was the royal mistress of Charles II. Uh-huh. So what tremendous progress we've made that two people can get married and the royal family can still stay intact. Right. <laughs> Radical. Yeah, there were some mutterings from racists in Britain about, well, how black is she? She doesn't look, she has darkish skin, but uh, you wouldn't look at her and immediately say, oh, she must have a black parent. So it's some of the same debate that took place around Obama, who was also biracial. But by and large, she's being welcomed. It's not considered a scandal. And I think it's possibly made quieter by the fact that he's way down the line of succession. Mm. He's fifth removed from being able to be king. Yeah, and that's a good point. There's probably a practical angle to this. On the one hand, you want to think, well, that's good. At least there's a minimal progress in this world, right? Where somebody can get married to someone they like and they want to get married to, uh, regardless of their royal heritage and the whole family and nation will not completely freak out over it. But uh, on the other hand, he's really far down in succession. So in a way, like... Uh, let's look at it from that practical standpoint. It's not really that large of a concession. I wonder what would happen if somebody a little closer to being in line did something like that. Well, things have really been changing there. Um, the uh, royal family also made a big point of saying that they would pay for the wedding out of their own money, some of which they get from taxes, of course. But they have their own industries. You know, you buy a pot of jam that's authorized by the queen. <laughs> You're paying into the royal treasury. Sure, yeah. As I understand it, their land holdings have some value, too. Oh, yes. <laughs> So there's another form of citizenship. Uh, You can be a citizen of the European Union. If you're a citizen of a country in the EU, you're also a citizen of the Union. And that was established in the 1992 Maastricht Treaty. And they're about to lose a whole bunch of citizens in the United Kingdom, unfortunately. But um, that's a kind of citizenship that is... uh, Sort of tangential and sometimes annoying to people, but it does exist. When I was in school, we used to also be taught that we had to learn good citizenship in school. Sometimes teachers use that term just to mean good behavior. But we were also taught about how the government is structured and what voting means and all that kind of thing. There were classes also known as civics. And a lot of that has gone by the by. You know, it's not a STEM discipline. Mm-hmm. Right. Or they'll tuck it away inside of some other course and it'll be, uh, oh, we're going to spend two weeks on it or something, but they're not going to devote a semester or a year to delving into it. 
One of the things that people are observing a lot is that feeling that the government belongs to the people and that we should be able to make the government do what we as citizens want done. And if it's not working rightly, it's partly our responsibility to do something about that. I mean, you complain all you want about corrupt uh, donations and super PACs and so on as we were last time. Uh, but if you get so discouraged by all this that you don't bother to vote or vote only to protest something and not because you think the person you're voting for will actually do a good job, uh, you're the one ultimately ruining things for everybody, for yourself. Right, right. And talk about civics and uh, we have the related word civility good manners. Uh, these are all supposedly part of operating in society in a very nice way. Well, yeah, and civility, of course, comes more from being civil and not a civilian so much. That's different. But uh, being polite. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so like our teachers <laughs> were making uh, civics and civility sort of merge together. Uh, yeah, there have been many calls for civility in Congress back in Obama's administration, and it's gone by the board. People are just outrageously insulting to each other. Yes. They haven't started shooting at each other again uh, the way they did early on in our history, but uh, it's gotten pretty bad. Yes, yes. Uh, but you know, if you uh, follow along that line, there is a time for civil disobedience. Right. I mean, this is another. Well, it's not re really related to citizenship directly, but maybe you might consider it the duty of a citizen to exercise some civil disobedience. Yes. Well, the term was given its modern meaning by Henry David Thoreau in an 1848 essay. The original title was Resistance to Civil Government. So it's not being civil in resistance to government. It was civil government as I don't know what other kind of government he was thinking of, but maybe, I don't know, religious government or something. I'm not sure. I really don't know that much about it. But it's defined as protesting governmental laws or policies in a peaceful manner. Mm -hmm. um, so being civil is doing this. And so you can be against what the government is saying. And often it has to do with, well, in Thoreau's case, it was refusing to pay taxes. And often these people are on the right, but there have also been uh, anti-war activists on the left who have protested by not paying taxes during the Vietnam War, for instance. Um, but it can also mean going out and stopping traffic in the streets. Uh, it can mean you know, breaking laws about uh, where you can have a demonstration and when and so on. One of the famous tactics in the history of the civil rights movement were the sit-ins at lunch counters in southern cities where uh, blacks were not allowed to eat alongside whites, and they would just go and sit on the counters until, in many cases, they were dragged away by the police and thrown in jail. Um there were also ride-ins on buses and other kinds of inns, but those sit-ins are the ones that really established uh, a model for what active civil disobedience is like. Um, they were called the lunch counter sit-ins. We don't really talk about lunch counters much anymore. No, they don't really exist the way that they used to. It used to be that a five and dime or the drugstore would have a lunch counter that they operated and people sit and have a cup of coffee, a sandwich or something. But uh, they've given way to 
coffee shops and cafes and things, I think these days, you don't really drop in at the Walgreens to use the lunch counter. And uh, even if you did, it would not have the same profile that it did in those days. You think of those sit-ins as happening on some kind of main street or main drag where uh, there's a prominent store and storefront and through the window everybody can observe these people breaking the law by just sitting at the counter it would not have the same effect if you went into well i think target has a lunch counter right right somewhere tucked back in the corner of the store and you can go in and out of target and never notice that it even exists well actually the one that we shop at has it right at the entrance well it can be at the entrance but it's off to the side there and yeah most people aren't running into Target to use the lunch counter. They're just doing some other shopping. So you can miss it entirely. But I think the reason why the sit-ins at the lunch counter were effective was that they were visible. You know, sort of by definition, if they hadn't been able to be seen, they wouldn't have uh, been effective. Well, this whole idea of uh, civil disobedience has evolved and in America has come to mean uh, engaging in protests that are technically illegal, but because you object to the law and believe that it may be unconstitutional or should be unconstitutional. And uh, that's the basis on which it's often made. But this sort of activity was really pioneered by Mahatma Gandhi. Mohandas Gandhi was his name. Mahatma, by the way, was just an honorific. He was a great, admirable man. And remember that you always spell Gandhi G-A-N-D-H-I. <laughs> right, right. That's where the H comes, after the D. Yes, yeah. But anyway, trying to get independence from England, uh, his approach was nonviolent resistance. And that came to be known also as passive resistance. Now, if you're trying to stand your ground and cops or soldiers are beating you and dragging you around, that's not very passive. Um, and most people who engage in this sort of thing do not like the term passive resistance. It's a very active way of trying to protest. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, inspired in turn Martin Luther King. Uh, who certainly preferred the term nonviolent resistance. And the idea is you're not doing anything violent, but you are resisting. Mm -hmm. You're not just passively taking whatever happens and uh, violating the segregationist laws of the South, including school integration laws, bus integration, and so on, was done on the grounds that these laws were themselves illegal because the American Constitution should be interpreted in such a way that such laws would be illegal. And eventually, um, Congress was convinced to pass a civil rights bill under Lyndon Johnson, uh, not one of my favorite people, but something he really did accomplish, although he had his problems even there, but he did manage to get those laws outlawed. Now they have to be more sneaky and have all kinds of voter suppression laws and so on to get at blacks in the South. But the nonviolent civil disobedience was a very powerful tool. It doesn't always work. In fact, most cases, uh, people engage in it. There was a case right here in our little island where um, a company had announced that they were going to cut down 700 trees in order to clear the way for a new shopping center. And this shopping center turned out to consist of a drugstore right across the street from two other drugstores and a bank next door to another bank and across the street from 
another bank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so not a great addition to commerce on the island. Uh, but there was a young woman who protested by climbing up into one of the trees and saying that she would not come down. And this uh, got onto YouTube and somebody composed a protest song honoring her. And there was a bit of a national notice. Uh, but eventually she was forced to come down out of the tree and they cut down the trees. Uh, yeah. Well, and built a really ugly shopping center. Fought the good fight, though. Yeah, so that's a classic example of civil disobedience. Right. Now, when you look up civil disobedience in Wikipedia, they refer you to Antigone, uh, Sophocles' play. Now, the story of Antigone, as it relates to civil disobedience, hmm, Greek tragedy and civil disobedience. I mean, what's the story there? Well, I used to teach this play, and it's interesting. It's not as a simple story, but <laughs> no, uh, no. her uncle Creon is taken over the state and become very dictatorial and so on. And the two brothers surviving after Oedipus is dead fight each other and manage to kill each other in an awkward way that leaves things open for their uncle Creon to take over. And he declares that the two of them should lie unburied just uh, sort of like the prisoners in 19th century or 18th century england whose heads would be cut off and then uh, left to rot or i guess it wasn't their heads cut off it was just the bodies were left to rot so people would see them and so uh, he declares that nobody should bury these bodies and antigone their sister is just objects to it and very eloquently speaks out about the importance of some laws being greater than that of just what the central person in authority thinks. And she goes out and sprinkles some dust symbolically on the body. She doesn't really effectively bury them. And she gets arrested for that. And this is all complicated by the fact that she's engaged to marry Creon's son. So she winds up being severely punished for this act of civil disobedience. It's not at all clear what Sophocles' own opinion was. He he actually, uh, you can make a case that she was a little bit crazy. Um, and the Greeks had these torn feelings about their government, the Athenians in particular, which is the, the group that was involved in this, because the Athenians uh, did have self-government, um, but they often were upset about the things that wound up happening. And, and of course, we talked earlier about the fact that they, they often had these intervals of dictatorial people put in power. So the, the tensions between uh, following the rules on the one hand and doing the decent thing on the other is important. But I, I used to point out to my students as well that uh, Antigone is a, a pointing out to a higher law of the gods, and she is trying to link religion to her actions. And that was rare for the ancient Greeks. Their religion was a matter of ritual, and you certainly hope to get advantages and blessings from the gods, but you didn't look to them for moral guidance. The stories they told about the gods were stories mostly of gross misbehavior by human standards. Uh, murder, adultery, seduction, cheating, civil war, you you name it, uh, lying. The gods were not models of good behavior, and there was nothing like either the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments uh, in, in Greek religion that told you how to behave, that their uh, ethics were derived from social custom and then from philosophers like Socrates and Aristotle, people who said, uh, you know, this is really the way we ought to behave, and they didn't necessarily derive them from the gods. 
so when she takes her stand saying uh, that the civil authority is corrupt and I'm going to oppose it and then calls on a higher power, she's not doing something that was very common in Greek society. And it wasn't something everybody was going to recognize and saying, oh, yeah, well, we recognize the gods say that people should be buried. Yes, that was one of the things that was attached to religion. Dead bodies should not be left exposed. But it wasn't as powerful a force as you find in the Bible-believing South, for instance, today in America. Well, and, you know, I think there's also an indication of uh, how civil disobedience can work over time, because with, with all of the time passed and cultural shifts and um, uh, upheavals and so on that, have, that in the intervening years between the time of Sophocles writing and Antigone the play and today, it sounds rather tame for us to imagine somebody sprinkling some dust on a couple of corpses and, and being thrown in jail for life over over that there may be similar acts that you'd be chastised for or something but uh nothing nothing on the scale of the suffering that antigone goes through right so there is a a method to the madness there civil disobedience and uh the term that people object to passive resistance because when you are resisting by definition you're not being passive right right but the preferred term of non-violent resistance there is a method to that. Well, they will say method to that madness, because as you point out, some people think that Sophocles might have painted her as kind of being a little off the rails there. The uh, root meaning of passive, of course, has to do with passio suffering. And mm. um, that does make sense if you're being shot out with uh, fire hoses and having police dogs attack you and so on. You certainly would suffer. Oh, but right. uh, when people use yeah. the term passive today, they don't they don't think of that term. Right. Well, you mentioned civil war a minute ago. Let's talk about civil war. I've you always hear the expression there's no such thing as a civil war, right? And not behaving civilly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the a war between the citizens or inhabitants of a single country, state, or community. So most people know about the Civil War in the United States, and there's been a great deal of discussion recently about it because of these uh, conservatives or alt-right people who claim that the Civil War was just a matter of states' rights and people fighting for a noble cause and had nothing to do with slavery. Um, there's abundant evidence if, if people are willing to look at it that uh, yes it was all about slavery it wouldn't happen without the south trying to preserve slavery mm -hmm. um but there have been a lot of other civil wars i can think of one that uh, ended not so long ago in sri lanka between buddhists and hindus which was very bloody and very nasty and led to a couple of really ugly developments one of which was the invention of the idea of child soldiers and the other of suicide bombers so we owe both of those modern phenomena to uh, the tamil tigers and their opponents uh, in the government in sri lanka but uh, wikipedia notes that civil wars have become more prolonged in recent years the american civil war was a long one and lasted long enough and was horrible enough that uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, writing Notes from Underground, which we discussed at length in an earlier episode, said that uh, his his character pronounces that the, the notion that government can be rational and that, uh, that people can behave ultimately in a rational manner and solve social problems through logical thought is disproven by what's happening in that 
supposedly rational nation, the United States, where the Civil War was going on. He cites it specifically. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the Civil War results in an economic collapse, and that happened in, in Burma, which became Myanmar, which is much in the news these days, and where the government there is treating uh, the Rohingya as uh, an alien occupiers that have to be driven out and from the point of view of most people, it's a civil war. Somalia, Uganda, Angola, all of those had promising futures before they were engulfed in civil wars. Since 1945, civil wars have resulted in the deaths of over 25 million people and the displacement of millions more. So civil wars have been very, very prominent in modern times. I've never understood the fad for people wanting to go out and play at civil war and you know reenact oh the civil war reenactment yeah. things yeah yeah that's a little bit odd kind of uh obsessive and go back to the argument that the u.s civil war was over states rights of course if you look at declarations of war uh, during the civil war specifically called out the right to hold slaves. Some as, of them did specifically, yes. And so you can't really make the argument that it is about states' rights, but I think that the argument for states' rights resonates enough with people that they kind of glorify that time when people were so passionate about some idea that was related to their community or their region, their area. I think that might be some of the impetus for wanting to go back and reenact some of the Civil War or something. I'm not sure because a lot of these Civil War reenactments take place in entirely in the north. Um, so some of the some of the soldiers have to fight for the Confederacy and some for the Union. And, yeah. Uh, why would you ever want to go be a, a Confederate in the, in the Civil War? Yeah. No, knowing now, intellectually knowing that you're fighting for the cause of holding slaves. One of the most influential Civil Wars ever, of course, was the, the Chinese one, a revolutionary war on the part of the uh, communists led by Chairman Mao against the established government there. Um, which has had still having consequences for the world today. And the, uh, Vietnam is sometimes considered a civil war. There was a division between the North and the South, and very much like the division between North and South Korea. But a lot of observers from outside looking at it said, you know, this really isn't about China trying to take over Vietnam. And in fact, <laughs> once it was independent and thoroughly communist, they fought a brief war with China which is kind of interesting in itself. Very few people know about that. Um, but it really had to do more with Vietnamese fighting other Vietnamese over the future of, of Vietnam. Um, Afghanistan, of course, has had many civil wars, and they're still engaged in one. It just goes on and on, almost for centuries. Talk about quagmires. Is there more to say about civil wars? I mean, we kind of covered the territory, I think, here. And well, in, enough as a sample, anyway. There's certainly a huge amount to be said about civil wars. But <laughs> the one thing I would add is that gun rights advocates often explain that the ultimate reason to for every citizen to be able to bear arms is so they can take up arms against their own government uh, and engage in a revolutionary uh, overthrow. Uh, something that actually was not entirely foreign to the thinking of some of the founding fathers, mm -hmm. but uh, it, that's uh, that's treason. 
you know, <laughs> that's just plain old treason. And mm-hmm. it, it, the idea of flying the American flag and the Civil War flag and announcing that you want the right to rise up and, and shoot the people in Congress and, and take over the White House and so on is uh, not in any way a civil act. That should not be part of our ideals as American citizens, that we have the right to kill our members of our current government and and replace them with something else. Right. And just as it has always been, I think, the power of the state and the military might of the state is always going to be working against you, regardless of how much you try to arm yourself to the teeth out there in the Nevada desert or sort of way in some uh, Texas compound or something. It's it's hard to imagine uh, actually waging a real war against that military might. It better better to choose some other means to make your case. Civil wars are fought because uh, people run out of other ideas for solving their problems. I'd like to continue talking about some of these political terms and terms of government, but we have a, 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 a we're going to shift gears next time. You know, we were talking about citizenship and nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience and civil war. This was supposed to be a civil conversation, but we took a a bit of a dark turn here. (laughs) But I want to go deeper into that dark turn and talk about crusades and demagogues and this other slew of subjects. But we'll have to save that for next time. Okay. Thank you, Paul. All right. So long time. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.